Open your Bibles with me to Genesis 25. And while you're turning there, we're going to be dealing this morning with what I think is one of the most difficult subjects that the Bible speaks on. And usually when we wade into difficult subjects like this, I give you some kind of warning, some kind of disclaimer ahead of time. I say something along the lines of, this might make some of you mad. This could be a topic that makes you uncomfortable. You might even choose not to come back to our church after you hear a sermon on this topic. You're going to be stretched theologically as you hear this sermon today. But today I'm actually not going to give you that warning. And the reason I'm not going to give you that warning is because I want to tell you instead that the subject matter that we're going to deal with today from Scripture is beautiful. It's a beautiful subject matter. God has revealed things about himself to us that should cause us to wonder at who he is and the mystery of how he works. This is what God has chosen to teach us about himself And Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. There are many things about God and how he operates, how he thinks, that he has not chosen to reveal to us. But there are other things that he has. And those things should lead us to worship and praise and wonder. And so today as we look at this text of scripture we're going to study, our Bibles are going to paint for us a picture of a titanic God. A God who is full of all wisdom and all power, who is providentially bringing all of his purposes to pass, that no obstacles might stand in his way as he brings these things into being. We're going to see a mighty and majestic God in Scripture today, who from before the foundations of the world has been directing the flow of human history to his perfect intended ends. A God who, because he is God, exercises his right to bring about his purposes for his people to the praise of his glorious name. That's the picture we're going to look at today. And my goal this morning is not to stir up controversy. I don't enjoy that. I'm sure you don't enjoy that. There's no point in being controversial for the sake of being controversial. But my goal is to examine the scriptures together, that in doing so, we might come to know God more and ultimately love God more and trust him more. And so we're going to talk about the sovereign providential right of God to do what he pleases. And all too often, again, I tell you that this subject matter is difficult, and it is, But I think that all too often we also forget that to think rightly about God as his people, as his creatures, as as creatures made for his glory, to think rightly about God is sublime. It is marvelous. It is wonderful. Man has no greater end than to contemplate God. And in contemplating him to enjoy him and to worship him and to give him glory. And so we're blessed to be able to enter into God's joy as we meditate 
on what the scriptures teach regarding this subject matter today, that God is steering all of creation to the praise of his glory. And I've been praying fervently, anxiously this week for you and for me that we would be willing to humble ourselves as creatures and to receive what his word says, that we might consider the infinite wisdom of God our creator and therefore appreciate his goodness in these things. So to that end, let me pray. God, I ask that you would make our hearts tender to receive your word. I pray that you would bring us into conformity with what your word teaches, that we would think rightly about you, and that thinking rightly about you would lead us to love you and trust you. I pray that you would teach us to treasure your word and to treasure what it reveals about you. These are things that man would never make up about God. And so I pray that we would be submitted to them and that they would cause our hearts to long for you and love you and trust you and rejoice in you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 25, we're going to pick up in verses nine, or verse 19. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, so we've been following God's promise for many chapters now, many weeks, months. His promise to Abraham, which has now passed on to Isaac. This promise that God would make Abraham and his descendants into a great nation. And that through them, God would bless all the earth. And now Abraham has died. The promise has passed on to Isaac. And so Isaac now appeals to God on behalf of his wife, who is barren. And God supernaturally opens Rebekah's womb in response to Isaac's prayer that Rebekah might have children. And although this is her first pregnancy, she can tell that there's something funky going on here, right? Like inside of her womb is this epic fistfight between these two boys and, and she's feeling it. So she inquires of Yahweh to explain this strange phenomenon that she's experiencing. And God says to her, There are two nations in your womb, 
and the older shall serve the younger. Which is contrary to all of the cultural expectations of the day. Where the oldest son would be the privileged son. The oldest son would inherit what belonged to the family, including something like this promise. And so in time, it comes to pass that the boys, the twins, are born. And just as God said, there are two boys there. The older is called Esau, which sounds a little bit in Hebrew like the word hairy, because he's born with lots of body hair. Later, we're going to find out that uh, he is called Edom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for red. And the reason he's called Edom is because his hair is red, but also there's this scene that we're going to get to next week where he actually trades his birthright, his inheritance, for a bowl of red stew. The younger twin is named Jacob because he's grasping his brother's heel as he is born. And the name Jacob sounds a bit like the Hebrew word for heel. Okay, but God's prophetic revelation about these two boys in verse 23, this is what I really want to focus on, and we learn a couple of things. First, we're told these boys will be divided. And indeed, as we follow the story of Esau and Jacob in the coming, works, uh, coming weeks, we're going to see that these two boys are pretty consistently engaged in competition with one another. And it's a contest that often gets intense. We're going to deal with those scenes in the weeks to come. We're also told in this prophecy that God speaks to Rebecca that these two boys are two nations. Those are the nations of Israel, which we're going to follow as we continue through Genesis, and Edom that shows up again throughout the Old Testament from time to time. And the contest between these two boys doesn't remain just between the two of them. It's going to pass down through their generations so that throughout the Old Testament, we see these two nations competing with one another, spanning many centuries of Old Testament history. Then we're told that the older will serve the younger. In, in the immediate context as the story unfolds, what that means is that Esau is going to end up serving. Esau, even though he is the older brother, he's going to end up selling his birthright and serving the younger brother, Jacob. And that part of the prophecy is going to unfold again next week as we get to that part of the story. But in the long term, there's a, a long-term fulfillment for this prophecy as well, which is that about a thousand years later, when David is king of Israel, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, we are told that David brought the nation of Edom into submission under the nation of Israel. Okay, but most importantly, this prophetic word from God reveals to us something fascinating about God himself. See, God's promise to Abraham has now passed to Isaac, and we would expect that it would continue from Isaac to Esau, the firstborn son. That's what custom and tradition would dictate. But God does not respect the will of men. God does not respect the dictates or the customs of men. God has his own purposes and God is committed to fulfilling those purposes. And so in this prophecy, God declares that Abraham's blessing will not go to the oldest son, Esau. Instead, it will, it will pass and the blessing will rest upon the younger son, Jacob. 
Esau is rejected, and Jacob is chosen. Now, this really shouldn't surprise us as we've been making our way through Genesis because God's already done something very similar in the story. We read it recently. Remember Ishmael and Isaac? Ishmael was the older son, but God rejected Ishmael. And instead, God chose to favor Isaac, that Isaac would become the son of promise. And so God is bringing about his plans and his purposes to the praise of his glorious grace in the way that he chooses. And so that it might be based on God's grace and not the will of man, God once again chooses not the son that we would think would be the favored son, but God chooses the younger son, Jacob, to carry on the promise. And God has every right to do this. Why? Because he's God. Okay, so this is where things get intense. Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I want to read for you a long quote from a pastor named Charles Spurgeon who gave a sermon on this subject matter. And I think he kind of gives an introduction to the topic that is helpful. So we're going to be in Romans 9, but let me read this for you. Do not imagine for an instant that I pretend to be able to thoroughly elucidate the great mysteries of predestination. There are some men who claim to know all about the matter. They twist it round their fingers as easily as if it were an everyday thing. But depend upon it. He who thinks he knows all about this mystery knows but very little. It is but the shallowness of his mind that permits him to see the bottom of his knowledge. Yet he who dives deep finds that there is, in the lowest depth to which he can attain, a deeper depth still. The fact is that the great questions about man's responsibility, free will, and predestination have been fought over and over and over again and have been answered in 10,000 different ways. And the result has been that we know just as much about the matter as when we first began. The combatants have thrown dust into each other's eyes and have hindered each other from seeing and then they have concluded that because they put other people's eyes out, they could therefore see. Now, it is one thing to refute another man's doctrine, but a very different matter to establish my own views. It is very easy to knock over one man's hypothesis concerning these truths, not quite so easy to make my own stand on a firm footing. I shall try then, if I can, to go safely if I do not go very fast, for I shall endeavor to keep simply to the letter of God's word. I think that if we kept more simply to the teachings of the Bible, we would be wiser than we are. For by turning from the heavenly light of revelation and trusting to the deceitful will-o'-the-wisps of our own imagination, we thrust ourselves into swamps and bogs where there is no sure footing, and we begin to sink. Instead of making progress, we find ourselves sticking fast." The truth is, neither you nor I have any right to want to know more about predestination than what God tells us. That is enough for us. If it were worthwhile for us to know more, God would have revealed more. 
What God has told us, we are to believe, but to the knowledge thus gained, we are too apt to add our own vague notions, and then we are sure to go wrong. It would be better if in all controversies, men had simply stood hard and fast by the saying, thus saith the Lord, instead of having it said, thus and thus I think. I shall now endeavor by the help of the Holy Spirit to throw the light of God's word upon this great doctrine of divine sovereignty and give you what I think to be a scriptural statement of the fact that some men are chosen, other men are left. The great fact that is declared in this text, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Amen. So let's look at Romans 9. And this is a heavy passage of Scripture, my friends. This is a passage of Scripture that every person who calls themselves a Christian is going to have to wrestle with at some point. And like we're going to see in the life of Jacob, I think if you wrestle long enough, you're going to find yourself essentially weary and defeated by the enormity of God. But wrestle we still must do. And again, As difficult as it is, it is also glorious because we see a God who is big and mighty. So let's pick up in verse 1 of Romans 9, and we're going to read some chunks, and I'm going to unpack some stuff, and um, hopefully by the end of this, it'll make some sense. Romans 9, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and I do want you to understand, anytime we're talking about a passage of Scripture, we might reference somebody like the Apostle Paul, but in reality, this is the Holy Spirit speaking these things to the people of God. And Paul here is expressing his sorrow, his anguish, that his people, the Jews, have not placed their faith for the most part in the Messiah, Jesus. Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh, his fellow Israelites, the Jewish descendants of Abraham, those people that God called out of slavery in Egypt and led into the promised land, that they might be the people of his promise, they have mostly rejected God. And in this chapter, Paul's going to deal with this difficulty If God made a promise to bless the people of Abraham, then how come those descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, largely reject God? Did God fail in his promise if the nation of Israel remains in unbelief? Pick up with me in verse 6. Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this, ne- about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul says here in verse 6, No, God has not failed, although the Jews have rejected him. And the reason is because not everybody who is ethnically descended from Abraham belongs to Israel. Not everyone who is ethnically Israel belongs to the chosen people of God. This is an incredibly important point, my friends. That not all who are descended from Israel by the flesh are Israel. Because the blessing that God intended for Abraham and for his people was never based on lineage or family history or DNA. That's not the point. That's not what makes you a covenant member of the children of Abraham. Being Jew by virtue of your DNA. And Paul proves this by quoting the text of Genesis back in chapter 21, verse 12. We looked at this a while back where God says, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's what God said to Abraham. So God chose Isaac to be the son of the covenant promise, even though Ishmael was the firstborn in the family. And so Romans 9 is helping us understand that it's not a biological connection to Abraham that makes one a child of the promise. Rather, it is God's choice. Abraham actually wanted Ishmael. Do you remember that? He says, oh God, that Ishmael, my son, might live before you. And that's when God responds and says, no, through Isaac shall the promise happen. Abraham wanted Ishmael to inherit the covenant, but God chose Isaac. So both Genesis and Romans here together are preparing us to understand this very big core concept concerning God that I think weaves its way through every page of Scripture. It is God's sovereign right to choose who he blesses. Let's pick up in verse 10. And not only so, so not just the example of Abraham and Isaac, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's promises of election might stand, or sorry, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. So this is the part that intersects with our text from Genesis. And once again, we've got two sons. We've got Esau the older and Jacob the younger. But remember, we already dealt with a similar situation. Let me review it again. Abraham had Ishmael, his oldest son, and Isaac, his youngest. But God rejected the older son, Ishmael, and chose Isaac. But we might say, well, the reason why that happened is because Ishmael was not the son of Sarah, Abraham's wife. 
That's why God didn't choose him. But now Paul's going to refute that argument. He's going to pull the rug under, out from under that argument. Paul talks about Rebekah as another example. Because Jacob and Esau shared both the same mother and father. And according to the dictates of man in this period in history, the firstborn son should receive the inheritance of the father. Which means that the covenant promise belonged to Esau by right. But God's will eclipses the will of man. God's will eclipses the will of man. And so God chooses Jacob, the younger son. Now notice, too, that God's decision concerning this choice takes place before any of these boys are even born, before they've done anything good or bad. So Paul points out that God's choice is not based on human behavior. It's not based upon works. But I want you to look very closely at verse 11. This is one of the reasons why I wanted you to have a Bible this morning. And again, if you haven't pulled it out, we've got them on the back table or use your phone. Look very closely at verse 11. There's a detail here that could easily be missed. It says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now we know as Christians that we are not saved by works. We are saved by faith. Faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. We might expect then that Paul would say here in verse 11 something like this. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of faith. But that's not what Paul says. Paul does not contrast here faith and works. And that's because before faith, there's something else. Even before faith comes something else. What is at work in salvation before faith? God who calls. God makes his choice. He does that obviously before works are a part of the equation. But he does that, Paul is saying, even before faith is a part of the equation. This is why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. What I see in that verse is That not only is grace a gift, which it is, but also faith. The very faith that we place in Jesus that saves us, even that is a gift that comes to us from God. God who calls us according to the purposes of his election. So that we cannot boast in our own achievements, not merely our works, but also boast in our faith. So Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. Why? Because that's what God decided. And Paul makes this even more explicit in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, when he quotes the prophet Malachi, where God straight up says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. 
Now listen, to our modern sensibilities that like to think a lot about what's loving and kind and fair, that sounds like a slap in the face. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. In choosing Jacob before his birth, God was pouring out his love and his blessing on Jacob before Jacob even did anything to deserve it. And in rejecting Esau in the womb of Rebekah, God was pouring out his wrath and his hatred upon Esau before Esau even had a chance to deserve it, to be deserving of it. Now, of course, we want to exclaim, that's just not fair. How can God do that? That is, it's simply unfair. But friends, hear me very clearly on this. The Bible unapologetically declares to us that God has the divine right of kings as king of kings to do everything that he pleases. That's his right. God did not put these two boys in separate camps based on any of their characteristics or their behaviors, not even their faith. God simply determined to do what is right, and because he determined it was right, it is right. God gave his favor and blessing to Jacob, and he loved him. And God left Esau with no blessing, and he hated him. And because that is what God did, it is good, and it is beautiful, and it is right, and it's true. And we might not like it. It might actually be deeply insulting and offensive to us, but that doesn't change it. Now, I know what you're going to say, and so does Paul, and so does the Holy Spirit, which is why verse 14 is there. Let's read on. The Bible's going to deal with your shock and your objection. You're not the first person to be like, this cannot be. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's what we mean when we say, that's not fair. God can't act like that. Paul knew you were going to ask the question. The Holy Spirit knew you were going to be like, I don't like this. And so verse 14, ask the question, how can God be just if this is how he treats people? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the Holy Spirit anticipates the question that arises in our indignant human hearts. And obviously Paul heard this objection a lot. I think as he traveled around planting churches and teaching people, he heard this objection a lot. People don't like to hear this. And so they resist 
what God reveals. And they say, if God chose Jacob and not Esau, just based on God's choice of election, not based on anything in them, and he did this before they even had a choice, isn't God unjust? Before we get to that question, though, I want you to, I want to try and persuade you that it's actually very obvious that God treats people differently however he pleases. And I think that we do believe this. I think you believe this. For example, how come you weren't born into poverty in the slums of India? I've been there. It's heartbreaking to watch little children, skinny, with not much to eat, walking around with underwear and no other clothing, living with a family of ten, in a shack probably about the size of your car. How come you weren't born into that circumstance? How come your brain functions enough that you can sit here and follow me through this argument and listen intently while I explain it to you instead of being mentally handicapped, unable to understand speech? Why? Why didn't you die in infancy before you had a chance to grow old? Out of the 7 billion people currently on planet Earth right now, why do you get to live like a king with your air conditioning and your car and your cell phone and your big TV and your streaming service and your grocery store that's filled with groceries? And the answer to all of those questions is simple. God chose where you were born and when you were born, and he chose to give you a mind that functions, and he chose the number of your days. Out of the seven billion people on planet Earth, God determined the circumstances of your life that brought you here today. And God has chosen to deal more kindly with you in your circumstances than he has chosen to deal with with billions of other people on planet earth. Is there injustice on God's part? Does your heart cry out, God, how dare you treat me so kindly when all these other people on earth are treated differently? The Bible's answer to this question, is there injustice on God's part in verse 14, is emphatically no. And the reason that we are given is a twofold reason. Part one is that God tells us how he operates. There's no surprise. You want to know how God interacts with people? Here it is. It's not as if he's keeping it a secret. God even said to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose. That I might tear you down so that I might be glorified. God could not speak about his divine right as God more clearly than he does in verse 18. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But the second part of Paul's answer to our question about injustice is simply this. There is no injustice on God's part for providentially choosing to love some people and providentially choosing to reject other people because God is God. And whatever God does is, by definition, right. 
God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills and that is perfectly righteous because what God determines is righteous. Righteousness is not a standard that exists outside of God by which he is attempting to measure up. God is the standard and therefore whatever he does is righteous. If God wipes a nation off the face of the earth, that's righteous. If God has mercy on some people, that is righteous. If God hardens other people, that's righteous. And let's address something else briefly at this point. Why do we think that we can argue that this isn't right? No human being deserves mercy from God. Like, God knows what you did last week. Do you think that you deserve mercy from him? We are sinners. We are corrupt agents of evil. We are rebellious servants who've been told to obey the commands of our master who've said, screw you. I want to do what I want. We are creatures arrogant enough to think that we can actually overthrow our all-wise and all-powerful creator. Paul actually finds it shocking that Isaac and Jacob were shown mercy. That's what he thinks is shocking. He's not shocked by the fact that God chose some and rejected others. He is shocked by the fact that God would choose any. That's what blows him away. Because Paul knows none of us deserve mercy. God is not obligated to show kindness to you or to me or to any person. And the fact that he pours out his mercy on some is truly astounding. When God flooded the earth and wiped mankind off the face of it, that was righteous. And when he spared Noah and his family undeservingly, that was incredibly merciful. But still the stubborn heart refuses to accept these things. And so the Spirit once again anticipates your response, my response. Look at verse 19. If God chooses, then how can God also judge people when they reject him? If they reject him because God chooses it to be so, then how can God judge people? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Friends, the first thing that I want to say here is if you don't like what these verses say, I, I actually can sympathize with you. But what you need to do is you need to humbly go before the Lord and you just need to ask him to bring 
your mind and your heart into alignment with what Scripture teaches. These words are in your Bible. They were given to us by God that we might know Him, respect Him, love Him, understand Him, that we might have a relationship with Him. That's why they're here. And they challenge our egos. They insult our sensibilities. They offend our autonomy. They upset our sense of freedom. That's true. These these verses put us in our place and remind us that we are nothing but dust and ashes in the hand of a mighty God. We are clay formed by this all-wise creator God whose authority over us and over all creation is absolute. And even if we were to cut these words out of our Bible or refuse to look at them or we were to come up with crafty ways to deny that they're here, to argue against them, it still would not change a single thing about who God is. But once again, we get the question, If people are chosen according to God's will, then how can God judge people when he doesn't choose them? That's a fair question. Don't you feel blessed that the Bible asks it? Because you would ask it, wouldn't you? But the answer that we get in verse 20 is basically this. Mind your own business. The answer we get is basically the same answer Job gets at the end of that book, if you've ever read it, where God says to him, who are you? What the heck do you know, Job? You can't even govern your own heart. Think about that. You literally cannot even govern your own heart. Did you do anything over the last week or the last month where you're like, I don't think I really want to do that, and then you end up doing it? You can't even govern yourself. You can't even actually will what you desire. Often you will one thing, but your will is so powerless you do the opposite. You don't even know, and I've been touching on this since we began Genesis, you don't even know how your material body came to be knit together with your spiritual soul so that you are an immortal living being. So how could you determine, you who are so ignorant, how could you determine your eternal state before God. In the grand scheme of the measureless cosmos and the unstoppable torrent of time, you're nothing. You're nothing. And you actually know nothing. Like, come over to my house and see all my books. I know nothing. Nothing. And yet you think, we think that we can question the God who calls into existence the things that are not. Who do we think we are? That we can question the God who governs the universe, creates life, and does whatever he pleases? See, we assume that God must explain himself to us, that we might examine him according to our standards, that we might make him explain to us according to our logic. But Scripture declares that God does not have to explain himself. He cannot be examined. He cannot be questioned. And whatever his standards are, they are right by virtue of the fact that they are his standards. Now, the Bible does teach us that we are morally responsible creatures. 
that we have a will, that we need to choose what is good and right, that we need to do what God commands us to do, and that is also true. But here's, here's the point. The Bible makes no attempt to reconcile these two things, that God has absolute sovereignty to bestow mercy upon who he wants to be merciful and to judge those who he wants to judge alongside with the fact that we must do what God commands and obey him freely from our own will. The Bible doesn't seek to reconcile those two things. Both are true because the Bible teaches them both. But here in Romans 9, verse 20, Paul's response to our question is not what we might hope or expect. Paul offers no answer. Instead, he simply doubles down. He says, God's God. You're not God. And as God, he's unquestionable. His authority is absolute. What he does is right because it's what he does. What he does is just because it is what he does. What he does is good because it is what he does. And we can either accept that or we can reject it, but we cannot change it. Not through rebellion, not through argumentation, not through denial. And the truth is, we shouldn't want to change it. We should simply surrender to this God. Because this is beautiful. It is the nature of God to rule all things. It is the nature of God to bring beauty out of what we have ruined. It is the nature of God to have a relationship with us where we are submitted to him. And our scripture reading from Ephesians 1 declared this to us. Let me read it again. Just listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why did he do this? In love. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, just like Jacob, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now look, I know, you're probably toast. Trust me, I know listening is hard, but preaching is hard too. But give me a couple more minutes. A, quick, a couple of quick points of application, and I'm going to go very fast, okay? So if this is too fast, you can access this on YouTube, and you can re-listen to the end here. First, don't misunderstand. There is a deep mystery here, which is why I read the Spurgeon quote at the beginning. There's deep mystery 
Just because God has mercy on whomever he has mercy, mercy does not mean that you are free from your responsibility. I am not pitching to you some kind of determinism that makes your actions irrelevant. What you do is of eternal significance in response to these things. The creature cannot say to the creator, you made me this way, therefore it's your fault, therefore I'm just going to go drink beer and play video games all day because what does it matter? That's not the point. You must choose to love God and to show your love for God through daily devotion to his commands. That is truly your choice. And I want you to hear that clearly. You must take responsibility for your life And you must seek to make it a life of praise to the glory of God the Father. So the first application, do that. Go do that. Second, we should respond to God's providential choice with praise. Why do you love God? Because he chose you. Praise God for that. You don't deserve that. You didn't do that. That's grace. Your heart should overwhelm with rejoicing. We would never have chosen this for ourselves. Never. We loved playing in the sewage of our rebellion, and we would have stayed there happily, ignorantly. But God called us out. He sought us out. So let's praise him for that. Third, if you disagree with my interpretation of Romans 9, then prove me wrong. Not with your sentimental feelings, not with your thoughts, not with a blog that somebody posted something on. Prove me from God's word. Not philosophy, not reason, but from scripture. Go to scripture, see what it says in this matter. I'm pretty convinced that I think you'll end up on my side, the dark side, whatever side you want to call it. I think scripture is pretty clear that God is sovereign over your salvation And I assume that if you deal honestly with the text, you'll end up reaching that conclusion yourself. But here's the truth. Over the course of my life following Jesus, there have been a couple of times where I've actually changed my mind. Somebody has come to me and said, I think you're wrong on that view. And let me show you from Scripture why I think you're wrong. And I've actually changed my mind. Now, I hope that you'll change yours if you disagree. But give it a crack. Let's get together over lunch or a cup of coffee and you can show me what you think Scripture says on this matter and I can honestly tell you that if you can bring to me a more accurate interpretation of the text of God's Word, I will change my mind. But I hope that in the same way you'll be humble enough to search God's Word and maybe change yours. Fourth, if you have people in your life who are far from God, (laughs) quick funny story, my wife and I met And like within a couple of days of meeting, we'd spent a couple hours together on a missions trip in the Dominican Republic. And like basically one of our first interactions was I took her to Romans 9 and I made her cry. (laughs) And I wasn't trying to make her cry, but like this was difficult. And part of the difficulty for her was what about the people in my life who I love? Grady, how can you just sit there and say these things when these people are dear to my heart? What can I do about them? Don't despair over whether or not God has chosen people that you care about. Do what you can. Pray for them. Pray that God would change their heart. And then speak to them about the love of Jesus. And then show them the love of Jesus in the way that you treat them, in the way that you act. 
Do everything that you can. But most of all, pray that God would do something. Fifth, and this is truly the last one, come to Jesus. Maybe you're sitting there and you're asking these same questions that the text brought up. Sometimes people hear this and they're like, well, how do I know if God chose me? How do I know? And, and you know what? I think I'm kind of upset that the choice isn't mine. Why didn't he give me the choice? Right now, this is the time. You're hearing the message. Come to him. Make that choice. Lay down your pride. Humble yourself before this God. Receive his forgiveness and love for you. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens the door, I and my Father will come in to him and eat with him. Right now, answer that call. Answer that knock. Open the door. Stop making excuses. Don't get all philosophical about it. Just surrender to this God. And join the people of God as we sing this song of the Lamb from Revelation 15. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. God, if there are any in this room who are resisting that knock, that call, Lord God, in your sovereign power, change their hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would not make excuses for our own behavior in life, that even though you have chosen us and you've lavished us with your love, God, I pray that we would understand that, that obedience is our calling that we must walk the way of Jesus, that we must will to be like Christ, that we must labor to live as he lived and to love you as he loved you. And God, I pray that as we turn to a time of singing, that truly our hearts would be filled with praise for our God who chose us before the foundation of the world that we might be yours for the praise of your glory. Amen.